Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everyone, Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 67 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. I am recording this episode the day after my child abuse episode came out. It's not quite Thanksgiving yet. And I have received incredible feedback from that episode. It's very uncomfortable. (laughs) But I think sometimes we think we know a lot about people in our lives and then we really find out that we don't know much at all. And that's what I think releasing such a personal episode will do. If you've been listening, I'm going to reiterate something you already know because you've been listening. But I'm trying now to talk about different things that my traumatic beginnings have caused to happen in my life or been a part of who I am. I talked about the mind-body connection. Anyone that's been abused or physically hurt or whatever learns very quickly how to get out of their body. You know, that's just something that, that happens naturally. Another thing that happens is something called self-sabotage. And that's what I'm going to talk about now. And this can affect all different aspects of life in all different areas of life, relationships, friendships, jobs, where you live, career choices, all sorts of things can be affected by this idea of self-sabotage. And as usual, I find, especially with women and especially abuse that's sexual in nature, we put a lot of blame on the victim and a lot of pressure on the victim to do a better job of rising above and moving beyond. It's just It's just sort of interesting to me when I read different things, what I find out. So I have self-sabotage, boundaries, relationships, intimacy, friendships. All of these things are triggery red flag things for me in my life. And when I look back on so many things that I've done, you know, I have a list of accomplishments that's incredibly impressive, but I know what I haven't accomplished. And oftentimes when you think of regret, it's not regret doing things, you regret what you haven't done. And, you know, you look at a lot of people on their deathbeds and Very few people regret the things they did. They often wish they had done more or wish they had done some certain thing that they didn't do. And self-sabotage is a form of protecting us from the things that we think are dangerous is what it really is. It's a protective mechanism. So I have this incredible book called The Mountain Is You by Brianna West. But it's incredible and I've learned so much from it. So I'm going to sort of use it as a guidepost for me. So when I I first thought about self-sabotage, the word sabotage means to ruin something, to sabotage, to get in the way of its success. And self-sabotage does exactly that. It gets in the way of some element of success. However, it's compared initially, right in the very beginning of the book, to like anything in nature that seems bad or traumatic. For example, a forest fire. Yeah, forest fires burn down beautiful forests, but that massive heat and that decimation of forest allows for new growth, for things that need to return to that ecosystem, for old, tall, dead trees that are now shading a forest to disappear so that the young forest can grow. The world takes care of itself and some forest fires start on their own. They aren't caused by people at all. And we also look at ourselves, our sabotaging selves as broken somehow, but it's through cracks in things that 
little little plants grow. If nature in and of itself wasn't broken, if it was sort of perfect and even and always balanced and everything was the same, nothing would grow. That sometimes what causes things to grow is the stress or what we perceive as something being broken. When I taught health, I often taught the two different kinds of stress, distress and eustress. So we all know what distress is, negative stress, going to a funeral, not having enough money, a bad thing happening to you, being bullied. You know, there's so many things that cause us distress. Eustress is something that's positive, but also causes us stress. So it could be planning a vacation, waiting in line for a roller coaster that you really want to go on. It could be planning a wedding. All of these things are positive things. Weddings are beautiful. Vacations are a blast. But the planning and organizing and scrimping and saving can be overwhelming. And I think sometimes the body doesn't know the difference. The body just knows the elevated heart rate and the fight or flight syndrome and the worrying and the nail biting and the insomnia. You know, even though it's for a positive thing, the effects of the stress are no different. Having said that, physical stress, emotional stress make us stronger. I know that I would give anything to have <laughs> no trauma in my early childhood. I can't go back and untraumatize my life, but I can utilize it to be stronger, better. And all that I went through has made me a lot stronger than I might be. The number of endurance athletes, female endurance athletes that I know, for me, it would be distance running. But in the 80s and 90s, when I was competing, that had been sexually abused was huge. And I remember thinking, wow, that can't be coincidence that we're all really good at, at running because running, you have to deal with intense physical pain that does not let up until the race is over. How do you keep going when you hurt so much? Well, anyone that's been in an abusive situation has coping mechanisms for dealing with physical discomfort or emotional discomfort. And that can be easily transferred into running in a race. So these are things that, that, oftentimes are positive things. If you want to build muscle, you have to stress the muscle out. The gist of this episode will be around self-sabotaging. So self-sabotaging happens typically when we can't rely on things that normally keep us safe. And so the first sentence that, that resonated with me is as follows. When we can no longer rely on our coping mechanisms to help distract from the problems in our lives, it can feel as though we've hit rock bottom. The reality is that this sort of awakening is what happens when we finally come to terms with the problems that have existed for a long time. The breakdown is often just the tipping point that precedes the breakthrough, the moment a star implodes before it becomes a supernova. So we're looking at something that I'm trying to fix. I need to stop sabotaging my efforts. And I'm realizing that really what I'm doing on some level is protecting myself from something. And, and really the, the issue is finding out what that is. Your mountain requires you to reconcile two parts of yourself, the conscious and the unconscious, the part of you that is aware of what you want and the part of you that is not aware of why you are still holding yourself back. And this resonated with me because so many times in my life, I have started things and I just don't finish them. And I, and I don't realize that I didn't finish until a long, long time later. And I wonder, why did I not finish that? What got in the way that I stopped? And so the mountain here is what we think of as self-sabotage. Like I look at this mountain in front of me and I have to figure out why am I sabotaging myself? What is it? And eliminate these behaviors. To have a mountain in front of you does not mean you are fundamentally broken in some way. Everything in nature is imperfect. And it is because of that imperfection that growth is possible. So in my little podcast opening, I talk about the fact that oftentimes growth comes from traumatic events, that the negative brings the positive. And this is reiterated here. And it really, it made sense with me. If everything existed in uniformity, the gravity that created the stars and planets and everything that we know would not exist. Nature relies on imperfections. I remember shortly before Molly died, she asked me if I thought it was okay 
for people to genetically engineer their babies. And I thought, no, that the reason nature works is the randomness of it, the randomness and the imperfections that come naturally. You know, it would be great if nobody was obese, but genetically altering your body to make you stay skinny is going to have a ripple effect in other areas, ultimately not be a positive thing to the human race. And I think of people that breed dogs, you keep breeding the same, you know, dogs that are related to one another. And eventually all these, all of these physical maladies come because you need the variety. You need things that are different. You need the randomness of nature. Your mountain is the block between you and the life you want to live. And so for me, sometimes I don't even know how to define the life I want to live. Facing it is also the only path to your freedom and becoming. You are here because a trigger showed you to your wound and your wound will show you to your path and your path will show you to your destiny. Okay, that sounds a little fluffy for me, but when I really read it again and again, it makes a lot of sense. And finally, it says, in the end, it is not the mountain that you must master, but yourself. When I think of the number of people in my life that have said this very thing to me, (laughs) it's mind boggling. You know, I can remember certain points, people in my life reminding me that sometimes I'm my own worst enemy. I remember Bill Whitmore telling me that my mouth and what I said and how I was, was a blessing and a curse. I'm doing great things, but it could take me down. And he was right. While what took me down wasn't necessarily my mouth, my mouth played a big part in my job loss. It was a convenient excuse. In looking at the mountain as you, we define self-sabotage in a very different way. In reality, self-sabotage is simply the presence of an unconscious need that is being fulfilled by the self-sabotaging behavior. So for me, it's further in this book, but it beckons mentioning now. For me, I'm trying to create familiarity and safety. There's a whole chapter on this, which I'm not going to read because I'm still pondering it. But when I look at all the things I have done to sabotage something I'm doing that would cause me to change or grow or succeed, When I really look at what am I doing, what am I recreating, I'm recreating something that I have perceived as safe and something that is I have made familiar. So I remember after the first time I was sexually abused, all I wanted was for life to go back to the way it was the day before that happened. It was mind-boggling how difficult it was to just learn to live with the fact that I was forever changed. So I spent my childhood just trying to recreate normalcy. I joined things. I liked being busy, so I became super busy. I never ever did just one thing because I felt that I needed a variety of things. I look at any time I'm putting all my eggs in one basket, and I find that to feel very unsafe. It's unsafe job-wise. It's unsafe friendship-wise. It's unsafe relationship-wise. And when I look at everything I watched growing up, it makes sense why I behave the way I behave. Getting to the point of changing it is something else, but I would like to go through some of the, some examples of, of ways that I've sabotaged myself in my life. So I would say initially as a little girl, you know, it's hard for me to look back at seven, eight, nine, 10 year old Barb as sabotaging anything. I, I was still developing who I was. I was trying everything. I think if anything, the self-sabotaging sort of began when I was old enough to have an independent life. And my first self-sabotaging behavior would be alcohol. I knew it was bad. I had a very alcoholic father who was a violent alcoholic. I had a cocktail hour alcoholic biological father who absolutely relied on his evening drinks. I did not have daily drinking in my house, which was a good thing. My parents joined the Baha'i faith and Baha'is in general don't drink. 
And so alcohol in our house disappeared, which was a good thing. But my desire for and the feelings that alcohol gave me and eventually a lot of other drugs have been a self-sabotaging behavior for me. I did them. I partied heavily all through high school, knowing full well that that was not going to help me run faster. You know, I would justify it by saying, well, I don't drink during the season, you know, the sports season. But even still, imagine if I never drank at all, I would just be that much healthier. And that, that behavior stays with me still. There are times that I still, you know, well, whatever, I don't care. I'm just going to drink. Okay. I'm consciously deciding to do something I know isn't good for me and, you know, do it regularly or do it in excess. I'm doing that. I'm making that choice. What am I doing to create this? You know, I can analyze a lot of different things. I think I drank in high school and college to fit in. I also drank because I liked the way it made me feel. And for a long time, I wasn't supposed to. And when you are raised to keep secrets as a child, you recreate secret keeping as a behavior because it fits into what you're supposed to do and what, what's familiar. And so I remember when I turned 21 and could actually legally drink, it wasn't as fun anymore. It didn't stop me from drinking, but it, it lost some of its appeal in terms of doing something I wasn't supposed to do. I look at my running. And, you know, all through high school, I probably handled the alcohol best, believe it or not, in high school because access to it was tricky and I was living at home and I signed these sports agreements that you wouldn't drink during the season. So I had big chunks of time where I did not drink and I worked out and was in all of this. The other thing that is often a sabotage for me is diet, eating healthy. I don't keep weight on. Weight maintenance and weight gain has never been a big issue for me. I am not an abuse victim that was anorexic or so I was thin or obese ever. Food for me has always just been to fill me up. I don't care. <laughs> Every day, Kenny will ask me what I want for dinner. Every day I tell him, I don't care. I really don't. I'll have chicken and rice and asparagus five nights a week. It's delicious. It fills me up. I, you know, it settles well. I don't need this big variety in my diet like some people do. Some people love the idea of cooking, the creation of the food, all the different tastes. You know, I get it. If you look at the little rats in the movie Ratatouille, I'm just the one that just eats. <laughs> so do I often follow diets that are healthy for me? No. Like right now as a 59-year-old woman working out in CrossFit, I should eat a much more rigid diet than I do. I waste a lot of my tummy space on processed foods. Well, bread mostly is my big processed food. I don't eat enough protein. I don't drink enough protein shakes. You know, I, I'm doing supplements and things like I'm trying. I'm trying to add the good things in. But, oh, I'm not fit. Well, I'm not eating well. I'm not laying muscle down. You know, I'm losing muscle. I'm old. So there are things I know I need to do and I just don't get over the hump and do them. I just don't take the first step. Coaching. So I remember I knew I wanted to be a teacher and it took me a long time to give up the nomad running life. I really, really just didn't want to give that up. And finally I became a teacher and what do I do? Well, I don't ever, ever spend enough time on lesson planning as I should. I do typical Barb fashion. I just make it up as I go along. I shoot from the hip. I focus on what I'm good at, which is the relationship piece. So my students learn. But could I have created better, more high quality curriculum for them? Always, always. The one thing I always did 100% and really gave my best at was coaching. And I think it's because it was related so closely to running and provided me the same sort of immediate feedback. But I used teaching and coaching in that full-time schedule to eliminate any sort of continued success in my running. I remember laughing and saying, if I have to get up before dawn to make an Olympic team, I will never go to the Olympics. And I meant it. I, I didn't want to get up in the morning. Okay, well, <laughs> sometimes, you know, I look at people that are training for Ironman triathlons and such, and you have like five or six hours a day of training. 
you have to get up before dawn. You just, there aren't enough hours in a day to get everything done. So that's another way that I sabotage my athletic career and I continue to do it. I just don't follow through on the things I need to, to do well. And then with the teaching, I just, you know, I just looked at teaching as something I had to do to pay the bills so that I could do what I wanted to do, which was, which was coaching. So why didn't I apply and coach at a college? Why didn't I ever take that step? Well, you know, I fell into a routine that was safe and familiar. I have been attached to the Concord School District for all but the first five years of my life. And the one year that I, before I was on the school board, that would be six years. And then the years I was in, in Boston, so eight. So I'm 59 and I would say 40 of my 59 years, maybe even more, I have been connected to the Concord School District. Talk about recreating a familiar place. I've recreated a daily routine that I did every day of my life from five to 18. Get up, go to school. <laughs> and so I remember when I started teaching in the district, sometimes I felt like, oh my gosh, I've, I've just come back to where I started. But I often said, I'm not gonna stay here. I'm not gonna be one of those people that comes back. I'm not gonna teach in the same place for 30 years. And now that I had that taken away from me at 21 years, I wish, I wish that I had, was still teaching in the district than I, had, than I had my 30 years. It feels different to me now that I've lost it. That was a self-sabotaging thing for me. I remember right before I lost my job, a couple of years before, I did a sabbatical. And my motivation behind doing the sabbatical was I felt like there had to be more than just this. And I remember sitting in my driveway, crying in my car, apologizing to the universe. It's not that I don't love my kids. It's not that I don't love my husband, but is this it? I'm just going to be like another housewife, school teacher. You know, like I really panicked that I was somehow letting myself down. So I've created some grandiose idea of what I'm supposed to be. And rather than acknowledging that I have that within what I'm doing, I have to attack what I'm doing as somehow negative and bad. So, you know, abuse victims often have self-hatred. If I were better, if I were more quiet, if I hadn't said this, if I did that, if I burned my pajamas more, all of the things that we do to try to control the abuse are reflections of ourselves. The biggest way I've probably sabotaged myself is relationships. So I grew up watching a chaotic relationship at home, watching my mother manage that and navigate it, and watching her sneak away to be with my biological father. So she had these two relationships at the same time. I watched all that. I saw all that. I was invited into all that. And while for the most part, I didn't understand what an affair was or sex or any of those things, I just knew that we spent a lot of time with Uncle Tom and I wasn't supposed to tell anybody about it. Is my mother a bad person for that? No. When you look at her life and look at her examples of self-sabotage, everything she did was to keep herself familiar and safe and to sort of bolster what she thought she should be doing, which was you know, trying to be a good mother and raising a family. She was a wonderful mother in a million ways. But I, I grew up knowing that if life was unsafe, it was always best to have a place to flee, a safe place to go. And so I created those. I have created those my whole life. I often have the person I deem to be safe and trustworthy, and then that person becomes a bit boring, or perhaps the safety and the trustworthiness becomes ominous, and I become afraid that something bad will happen. Oftentimes my second relationship, my escape is somebody that either isn't very nice to me or is a bit dangerous or practices behaviors that are not safe, drug use or drinking. If I were, were really to analyze the people in my life and who I was with and who I thought were safe, I remember before things really fell apart with Kenny and I, and I'll get into that a bit in season seven. I remember he was one of the first people, one of the only people in my life that could sort of satisfy both. 
my safetyness at home and the relief and the excitement of the escape. And, you know, maybe it's because for a long time, my relationship with Kenny was a secret. Nobody knew about it. We were very, very slow in letting people know that we were together. So maybe it had both. I don't know. But that was the longest relationship in my life where I didn't need to escape. And it wasn't until things really fell apart and I got sucked into the, <laughs> the family that I helped that that relationship really fell apart. But I always set up for myself some sort of safety mechanism. And when I look at everything in my life, everything has a safety mechanism. Teaching and coaching and then the running. You know, I always had some sort of backup plan in case something didn't work out. Then when I lost my job, so now I've lost my job. And so instead of using that, I look back on it now. And I remember my brother, Jonathan, saying, you know, get another job right away. I got paid for a full year. And so I spent that year just sort of being home with the girls and kind of recovering. And, you know, hindsight, I should have been working full time, even if I was waiting tables. I should have been doing something to make a lot of money so I would have money to live on and pay for health insurance and that sort of stuff. We really fell apart after I stopped getting paid. But what I did was I created seven days a week of, of work every day, doing things I already knew how to do. I, I timed 70 or 80 road races a year for five or six years in a row. I got a job at an online school at VLAX and I didn't make great money there. For the time I had to put into it, it was terrific money. I work at VLAX now. I'm just winding that down, holding on to the familiar. I do this. I worked at Flips Gymnastics for a while. I got heavily into CrossFit. So I found things to dive into that were familiar and safe. The CrossFit mimicked the running and I was really good at it. And I was really good right away. And everybody knew me. And I had this, I had this place in the gym now where I was one of the best athletes there. That was so reflective of running and trying to keep my running familiar. I look at this behavior sometimes. So one of the big things that comes up is I started my PhD or my EDD, a doctorate in education at Plymouth. I completed my CAGS, except that I didn't really complete my CAGS. I started that in 2012 and I took classes and I did online classes. I did an amazing job. And then I had to do a capstone project, a big project, and I just blew it off. I did this little thing at the Flips with Robin called Flips of Palooza. It was actually a lot of fun. It would have been it could have been a great event, like a yearly event or a semi-annual event. It could have made a lot of money and I just didn't follow through. I didn't follow through. And this used to really frustrate Robin. I have to say, for all I can say about her, she saw my potential and was frustrated by my lack of follow through. Why don't you just do this? She would get super, super frustrated with me for, for just sort of what she deemed settling or being lazy. And it, for me, it wasn't lazy. It was just, I just filled my life with familiarity. I ran for school board. And that reconnected me to the school district that I so desperately wanted to be connected to. Why do I need to be connected to the school district? That remains, you know, one third of the way through what I believe will be my final term on the school board. And I'm already thinking of other ways I can stay connected to the district. What can I do for a job in the district? Do I really want to work in the district? What's driving my desire to be connected to the Concord School District? And, and that's where the self-sabotage actually becomes self-growth. It's pretty amazing thought process. Another thing that self-sabotaging behavior is holding on to past relationships. So I don't, I don't hold on to them in the sense that I want to, you know, go back out with or redate or reconnect with people. But I definitely am friends with and maintain contact with a number of people that I've dated. Now, some of those people were, were very casual dating and mostly friends anyway. I think it's wonderful if you can maintain friendships with people that you were once in love with. There can be an unhealthy connection to this. I know somebody who, you know, I, I was Facebook friends with someone and I commented on there on something. And when I looked at all the women who commented on his post, 
they were all women that he had dated. So I quickly removed my post because I didn't want to be on a list of people that this guy had dated. It was pretty embarrassing, but I get it. I could see where I could make a comment and two or three people in my social circle now could comment and I could think to myself, oh, I've dated those people. Not necessarily unhealthy, but it's not necessarily healthy either. And then, you know, the trauma bonding that that happens when you've had a trauma and you realize that you're in love with somebody or you need somebody that's hurting you. So my problem is that the adults in my life that should have kept me safe didn't. But I, I had no ability at age 10 to move out of my house or divorce myself from my family so that I could stay away from my dysfunctional parents, my my abuser. I was stuck with these people in my life. And I also loved them. They were also good to me. So talk about a confusing definition of love, you know, where I love you because you feed me and you buy me clothes and you tuck me in at night and you keep me safe and you pay the bills and I have a house to live in, but you also hurt me and leave me alone and touch me where you shouldn't. And, you know, so you have all these people that are doing things for you. So you love them, but then they also do this bad thing for you. And so how do you reconcile? Where does the love stop and start? And if they really loved me, how could they do this to me? It's not surprising that sexual abuse victims, male and female, little boys who are sexually abused, regardless of who it is, male or female abusing them, struggle as much, if not more than little girls. It's just an ugly thing. And it just permeates every relationship we have and every definition of love and safety. Going along further in this book here, in reality, self-sabotage is simply the presence of an unconscious need that is being fulfilled by the self-sabotaging behavior. Again, for me, it was safety, familiarity, keeping my life familiar and manageable day to day, even if that interrupted with or kept me treading water. I have these little underlined areas. Self-sabotage is not always obvious. It can be a coping mechanism. Sometimes we sabotage our self-talk because if we believed in ourselves, we would feel free to get back out in the world and take risks. And that would leave us vulnerable. I have a big issue with self-talk. I tell myself terrible things about myself all the time. Oh, Barbara, you're so stupid. Oh my God, I hate myself. Why would I say those things to myself? We have to be our own biggest fans, but there are times that I do. I say these things and you say something long enough and you, you believe it. The power of language is intense. In the end, self-sabotage is very often just a maladaptive coping mechanism, a way we give ourselves what we need without having to actually address what the need is. So we acquiesce the need, we take care of the need without needing to go into what the need actually is. So the self-sabotage is like the ultimate Band-Aid. It's like <laughs> CBD oil on a sore shoulder. It takes the pain away so you can work out, but it doesn't really address the injury. Self-sabotage can come from irrational fears. So I look at fears in my life. A lot of my fears as a child were completely rational. I was afraid of my abuser. I should be afraid of my abuser. He was doing terrible things to me. But this can travel into life. The example under irrational fear, though, is really, really resonated with me. So here we go. I'll read the whole thing here. Sometimes our most sabotaging behaviors are really the result of long-held and unexamined fears we have about the world and ourselves. Perhaps it is the idea that you are unintelligent, unattractive, or disliked. Perhaps it is the idea of losing a job, taking an elevator, I used to be really afraid of elevators, or committing to a relationship. In other cases, it can be more abstract, such as the concept of someone coming to get you, violating your boundaries, getting caught, or being wrongly accused. I have always, always, always had an issue with being wrongly accused. When I came back, and taught to teach in the school district. And here I am teaching in the district with the biology teacher who took my virginity, right? And all of these things going on. So when Chris Rath did her damage to me 
and getting me to resign, really just running me out of the district, she fabricated a lot of stories about me being inappropriate with students. And I was livid and just, just furious. I can't stand people making things up about me. I really don't like it. My friendship with Robin, she says terrible things about me, horrible, terrible things that are not true. She has no basis for 90% of what she says. And then the things that she could use against me, she manipulates and exaggerates. Roy does the same thing. And there are people that know us and friends of ours that we share who are often, you know, why do you get so upset about it? It's just a trigger for me. I don't like people talking about me and saying things that aren't true. There's enough bad about me that is true that I'm happy to share with the world. I cannot stand people talking about me in negative ways. And in my life right now, those two people who are a huge piece of Molly's death and all that was going on in my life around that trauma are so connected. And that remains a journey for me. I think working through those years will be super helpful. And I think perhaps the key to my ending my self-sabotaging behavior. If you try to fix the problem on the surface, you'll always come up against a wall. That's the Band-Aid or the CBD oil. This is because you're trying to rip off a Band-Aid before you have a strategy to heal the wound. If you don't know what the wound is, how do you come up with a strategy to heal it? And this, and this just exemplifies my life so much. So they give all sorts of different examples here. Things being unfamiliar, belief systems, we're programmed to believe a certain way. To truly heal, you have to change the way you think. All of these things are said in a variety of books about a variety of things. Habit changing, being a good athlete, succeeding in the CrossFit gym, running a sub five minute mile. All of the things that you have to do to succeed in anything involve all of these things. A thought process change, a structural change, a, a schedule change, a diet change. All the things that you really want to do require these big changes. One of the biggest things to deal with though is the denial that there's an issue at all. So either way, if you are here because you truly want to change your life, here meaning reading this book, listening to this podcast, you're going to have to stop being in denial about your personal state of affairs. You're going to have to get real with yourself. You're going to have to decide that you love yourself too much to stop settling for less than you really deserve. Self-love, there it is again. <laughs> I tell myself I hate myself daily. I'm better now, but that's a habit that I have to consciously avoid. In an effort to love ourselves, we try to validate everything about who we are. And I do this all the time. Look at me, look at me. I won my CrossFit competition. Look at me, I'm, I can lift more weight than anyone my age. Look at me, I had a baby. Now, I'm not saying I do these things for validation at all, but I do these things and I bring them up for validation rather than letting them validate themselves. And this, this is definitely a part of the tendency in, in trauma victims to self-sabotage. One of the biggest things in trauma that Bessel van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, talked about was recreating traumatic situations. Why would you recreate something that scares the crap out of you? Well, because it's familiar and in the trauma is some measure of safety. It sounds completely backwards, but if you're listening and you've been through a traumatic event, especially as a child, and it's formulated how you think, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The other big piece of self-sabotaging behavior is, you, is the battle between your subconscious and your conscious mind. So one of the things that cured my asthma as a child was hypnotherapy, hypnosis. You regress back to early times in your life or you just open up the gateway for your subconscious mind to be prevalent. It's like meditation with a therapist guiding your meditation. And so you're relaxing and you're opening your mind to see what might be hidden there, your subconscious. Now, your subconscious mind can often be confused with spirituality or your soul or the part of you that's outside of yourself. I think those are two different things. I think the pathway to get there is the same. So what this is, is it says your, your subconscious mind is trying to communicate with you. And the way it communicates with you is by the behaviors you exhibit. 
and what you might be hiding from. So there's a whole bunch of self-sabotaging examples here. And so I just highlighted the ones that are similar to me, which I'll share with you. So they all start with the way you are self-sabotaging. So the first one says, going back to the same person who broke you in a relationship. This could be a platonic friend, but is most commonly a former romantic partner. So I've mentioned Roy before. I've mentioned Robin before. I have people throughout my life, when I was first teaching in Woburn, this teacher, Linda, that just hated me. All I could do was focus on her. I'd ask her out for drinks. We'd go for dinner. I'd, and she didn't like me and wasn't kind to me. But I was, I was somehow just obsessed with her liking me. And I can look at my whole entire life that way. When I was, anytime I was teaching and wanting certain teachers to not dislike me or I wanted their approval, it was always the ones that weren't going to give me the approval. So what is my subconscious trying to tell me in this? It could be time to evaluate your childhood relationships. Well, duh. If you find something comforting or appealing about someone who hurts you, there's usually a reason. If you find something comforting and appealing about someone who hurts you, there's usually a reason. Okay, my abuser hurt me, but he also comforted me, provided for me, someone I could go to sometimes, helped my family. Like, oh my gosh. So it absolutely makes sense. A, why I choose the people I choose, and B, why I don't want to let go of them. When the nicest people in the world, are right in front of me sometimes. And and those are the ones I I don't stay with. Eating poorly when you don't want to. Okay, so that's me. What might my subconscious be saying to me here? You are doing too much or you're not giving yourself enough rest and nourishment. You are being too extreme. This is why your body is requiring that you continually fuel it. Alternatively, it could be that you are emotionally hungry because you are not giving yourself the true experiences you crave. You are satisfying your hunger another way. Both of these things are true for me especially the I'm doing too much and I'm not resting. I don't ever schedule time in my day to eat. I have food with me all the time. I'm looking to my right here and I have a container of nuts and I have a protein bar. I have coffee. I have water. I have a protein shake. And I just put these things into my body as the day goes along. Now, I just listed some very healthy things, right? But when I'm super hungry and all that I see in front of me is something that's not healthy, I'll eat it because I'm hungry and I don't have time. I don't have time to worry about it. I'm not a food preparer. I try to do these things. This is another thing I'll start and never finish. Okay, I'm gonna have a nice breakfast every morning and I don't. I wake up and I drink my coffee and eat my banana and have my peanut butter sandwich and there it is. Another way of self-sabotaging that resonated with me. Not doing the work you know would help move your career forward. Oh my gosh. (laughs) My editor who's editing this right now is probably going, hello, my friend Lisa in that professional women in good company circle I'm in. Sometimes I'm the only one that hasn't followed through on homework. Why? Why? I spend the money to join a group. I'm in the group. I love the women I meet, but I don't follow up on all of the work that will help me to succeed. And so a year, a year after starting a business plan, I'm further along for sure, but not really. Some people have a business already and are making money and I'm just spending it. Your subconscious mind might want me to know this. You might not be as clear as you think you are on what you want to be doing. That's true. Sometimes I don't have a good sense of really what I want to do. If it isn't flowing, there is a reason. Instead of trying to push through and continually hitting the same wall over and over again, take a step back. So there's a saying in in Alcoholics Anonymous, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. I don't do that. I'll dig differently. I'll get a different shovel. Maybe it's time to regroup, re-strategize, Or seriously think about why you're trying to take the steps you are. Something needs to change, and it's probably not just your motivation. 
hello. I'm actually looking at different types of business coaches and looking at different areas I need help and support and guidance. And the ones I resonate the most with are the ones who are universal thinkers and understand energy and spirituality. You could help me step back. Okay, the way you were self-sabotaging, caring too much about what other people think. You know, I'm the first one to say I could give a flying fuck what people think, but I totally care what people think. You know, to a point, caring what people think doesn't prevent me from just being myself, but I definitely do care what's going on in the minds of others when it comes to me, especially if what they think about me isn't true. You are not as happy as you think you are. Okay, well, that doesn't surprise me. The happier you are with something, the less you need other people to be. Instead of wondering whether or not someone else will think you're enough, stop and ask yourself, is my life enough for me? How do you really feel about your life when you aren't looking at it through the eyes of others? This brings me back to my sabbatical. And actually that sabbatical was life-changing. And had I not you know, made the choices I made around helping that family, Shortly after that sabbatical, I think that would have taken me a lot of places professionally. Having said that, I still could have used that sabbatical to become a public speaker in health and all of that, which I still can actually. I learned so much in that sabbatical. I should dig it all out and look at the lessons and things. I'm too busy worrying about other people. Spending too much money. This is another self-sabotage. And so I've always said, if I have $50, I can live on it for a week. If I have $500, I'll spend it in a week. So what's going on here? Why do I spend money? So let's see what they say. Your subconscious mind might want you to know that things will not make you feel more secure. You will not be able to purchase your new way into a new life or identity. I've never been a big thing on things. I tend to spend money on experiences or I give it away. I give it to people, which is not good. If you're overspending or spending outside of your means on a regular basis to the point that it is detrimental to you, you need to look at what function buying or shopping serves. Is it a distraction, a replacement for a hobby? or an addiction to the feeling of being renewed in some way, determine what your needs really are and then go from there. So I don't buy things. If you look at my house, this shirt is probably eight years old. I don't buy things. I don't really know what I buy. <laughs> Gym memberships, maybe. <laughs> I put a lot of gas in my car. I don't know. But I do know that money, money disappears very quickly. I buy subscriptions to things like Hulu and Netflix. When I look at where my money goes, a lot of it just goes to bills. But it doesn't make sense. What I take in, I should, I should be getting a lot more mileage out of. So I don't manage that well. I'm actually getting some help with that. Here's a big one. Dwelling on past relationships or continually checking up on exes. I'm not a continual checker upper. I have connections with all of my significant relationships because we had similar friend groups. So, you know, like I look at Chaz while Chaz saved... <laughs> Chaz could have saved Molly. Chaz unplugged Molly. So do I have a constant connection with Chaz? No, but I had this amazing experience and he's a big piece of my life. And I'm Facebook friends with his sister because we share child loss. So that's an ex with whom I'm still connected. Graham, he lives around the corner from me. Our children are the same age, Gracie, Molly, Gavin, Matea. We shared social circles in raising our kids and you know all of that. So do I check up on him? Not in some sort of bizarre ex way, but I do, I do care about him. He was a guest on a podcast and I listened because I loved what he had to say. So that's one. Then I think of Eric, my first husband. I haven't connected with Eric in a long time. He's left the area. However, when he was still in the area, you know, we both belonged to the Baha'i faith. So I saw him at Baha'i functions all the time. We maintained a connection. We were polite and kind to one another. When I think of David, oh, I'm, I'm friendly with and in touch with several of his siblings. He doesn't have social media or maybe I'd be, maybe we would be, I don't know. But he was a huge piece of my life and his family was a huge piece of my life. You know, Karen and Diane and Michael are the three that I sort of comment with the most on Facebook and Michael's wife, Laura. 
Hi, everybody. They make my life better. So I don't feel like I'm, you know, looking up on them or, or all that. It's not like that. Dev, Bob Seventy, we're on Facebook together. He was a huge piece of my running life aside from our romantic involvement. We just spoke the other day. I think he listens to the podcast. I know he, he follows me on Facebook quite a bit. Always has a like or a heart around things I share. So yeah, I'm one of those people. I have, I have a lot of connections to my exes. My first real significant relationship, Jay, I have no connection with at all. And I think, you know, I have never really gone looking for him on social media. However, I would love to know how he was doing. And then there's Roy. And right now, Roy has absolutely blocked any communication with us. So we don't, we don't talk at all. I would love to know how he's doing in the same way that I feel about everyone else, that I just would love to know how, how he's doing and that he's happy and well and that sort of thing. I've just explained all the ones I still check up on or am connected to. And let's see what this book tells me why I do that. This relationship affected you more than you were letting yourself believe. Well, I know that. When I look at all those relationships, the only really unresolved one is Roy. The ending hurt you more than you acknowledged. That's the truth, and I need to process that. These are things I know very well. Your continued interest in this person means there's something about the relationship that is still unresolved, and there's probably some kind of closure or acceptance that you need to find yourself. All of this speaks unbelievably true in regard to my relationship with Roy. All my connections to the others, I feel that we've had closure. Relationships were ended and put to bed in a healthy way. This one's weird for me. I think, I think right now, because of how things are, I think I had that with Robin as well. Robin unfriended me before Molly's death, like just decided she hated me, blocked me on Facebook, and she was nuts. And, and one by one, anyone that was friends with Robin stopped being my friend. It was the most bizarre thing ever. I read this book called Power, and it made more sense once I read the book. It's about narcissistic personality disorder and some of the behaviors that are predominant and prevalent in people that either have this or are similar to it. So when I'm friends with Robin, all of her family and friends are suddenly my friends again. And when, when she decides that she's not friends with me, one by one, they all disappear as well. I have a lot of unresolved issues around that friendship as well, but I no longer feel the need to resolve them. I just think I've accepted that for what it is. And that took two significant losses for me to be there, but that's interesting. Not promoting your work in a way that would help you move forward. Okay, this is me in a big way. Some people think I'm quite full of myself and I talk about myself all the time and look at me, look at me, look at me. And that's very true. But I could probably have a very successful personal training business. I don't do it. I, I falter. I don't follow through. I have a lot that I could offer. And this was something that used to bother Robin quite a bit. I didn't follow through. I could have a website. I, there's so many things I know I could do. And, and I have these ideas I talk about with my editor around different ways I could be online and have an online presence. And they all intrigue me. And I think, yes, that would be so good. And I think about them all the time. I do nothing. I do nothing to follow through. What does my subconscious tell me about this? You're not creating the best possible work you can and you sense it. This I know. The reason why you're holding back is a fear of judgment. Well, that's true. But that wouldn't exist if you weren't already judging yourself. Okay, self-judgment is huge, especially in survivors of childhood sexual abuse, there is so much self-judgment. You have to create things you are proud to share. And when sharing them in a positive way that helps you grow your business or career, feels natural and authentic, you will know that you are doing the work that is at the best of your ability or potential. So I feel good in a CrossFit gym in front of a class because I know what I'm talking about. I'm really, really good at connecting a workout to everyday life. I'm really good at looking at my class and assessing the needs of the individuals in that class so that they all can complete the workout in a way that will make them healthy, that will improve their fitness and will not injure them. I am very, very good at that. 
I could do one of two things. I could just be a full-time CrossFit coach and that would be that. And there are sometimes I think I would love that. If I'm going to spend my days with people, I would love to spend my day in a CrossFit gym helping others. And then I have a place to work out myself. But I do know that that's a very limited reach. That's a local reach, a local gym, a few hundred people at the most. And I know that what I have to share is much bigger. So writing a book, doing the podcast, all of these things that I'm doing to a certain level of success are happening, but I'm not taking the steps necessary to make them better. If you notice, sometimes my podcast sound quality isn't great. And so I'm leaning right into the microphone today to see if, if this will help it. Really, I just need to upgrade my equipment. I'm using very basic equipment, a $200 laptop and a $70 microphone. And I know some people record their podcasts on their iPhones, but also people use really, really high quality equipment. And I think I'm ready to create an office for myself, a studio that has really good equipment. So that's the next step that I need to take that I'm just not taking. I continually put it off. The final one, I think, staying in a city or location you claim to dislike. So there are things I can't stand about Concord. One of my main draws to stay here, of course, is Molly. This is where Gracie and Molly grew up. Molly's grave is here. So it's hard for me to think of not, of not having a connection to Concord. Having said that, we've done more traveling since Molly died than we ever did prior. A lot of it to Florida, but just in general. And I find that something that is appealing to me is like the camper life, you know, get a, like a road camper that you drive and drive around and stay places here and there. Not really set down routes, but see different places. I have visited many countries around the world. And I, I think to myself, if I did not have Jack here, I could travel much more easily. But having said that, Jack is a great traveler and he makes every place we go a blast. And so there's no reason if I want to go to Italy, I can't take Jack. If I want to go to Israel, I can't take Jack. If I want to go to Hawaii, why can't I take Jack? He could be a part of all of these. Let's see what the book says about why I stay in Concord when I claim I don't like it. I mean, I have a lot of connections here and there's a lot I do like about it. Home is where you make it, not where you find it. Is this an issue of you being unable to move or are you simply unwilling? So maybe both for me. Usually when we stay in the same place, there's a reason. There's something we love about it. and It's where we want to spend our lives. The resistance comes in because of the judgment we imagine others may think if they know we don't live in the coolest, biggest, or the best area. So I know for me, the judgment moving back home, it's not something I wanted to do, but that was self-judgment. I went from Walker School to Concord High School at, in my 15th year of teaching because I wrote a note to myself, open this when you've been teaching for 15 years. And it was like, if you're still teaching in Concord at Walker School, it's time to get a new job. And it freaked me out that I was doing exactly what I said I didn't want to do 15 years prior. So I panicked and I went to teach at the high school, which contributed in hindsight to my eventual job loss seven years later. So why did I do that? You know, I had this, this panic about the same thing. And that's been me always. I, like, I just feel like I should be bigger than my hometown. Well, that's me. That's my thought, not someone else. You might also fear that people will judge you for not having progressed enough. I definitely feel that way sometimes. The truth is that you are judging yourself. Yes, I am. And you need to make peace or take pride in why you chose to live where you do. So for me, I guess... A little bit of both. There's a lot that I love about Concord. I love some of my connections. There's a lot that I don't. <laughs> and then the final one for me, mindlessly scrolling through social media as a way to pass the time. So this is a habit that I feel is actually changing brain function and neural pathways in the brain. And I feel that it's super detrimental. Having said that, I scroll social media all the time. I'm a little more focused with it now and I spend more time posting things. Although I realize in the past four or five weeks, I've fallen way off 
the real wagon, making reels and really posting actively on Instagram. I'm supposed to do this regularly. I have little reminders on my phone and I don't do it. Why not? There's the follow through again. So let's look at what the book has to say. This is one of the easiest ways to numb yourself because it is so accessible and addictive, kind of like alcohol, accessible and addictive. There is a world altering difference between using social media in a healthy way versus as a coping mechanism. Mostly it has to do with how you feel after you're finished. If you don't put the phone down feeling inspired or relaxed, you're probably trying to avoid some kind of discomfort within yourself. The very discomfort that just might be telling you that you need to change. So I will say two things for me. Social media saved me when Molly died. It was a way I could communicate with a number of people all at once. And the online support groups are amazing. I spend a lot of times in those groups still. So there's a lot of times I put my phone down and I feel better for having been on it because I'm connected to other mothers that have lost children. I'm connected to other podcasters. So I try to use you know, other CrossFitters, other runners. I try to use social media as positive connections. Social media is how I participate in my spiritual mentoring group called The Nest because we meet on Facebook and Zoom calls and things like that. So that's a tricky one for me. I, I have to moderate it better. And that melds into not doing everything I should do. So basically, the cure for self-sabotage is really self-knowledge. There's a big surprise. I have not finished this book. When I finish it, I will either write a blog about it or, or talk about it some more. But I realize for all the self-judgment I put upon myself, I really am reacting just as I should, just as makes sense, and just as normally as possible for what happened to me. I use this analogy all the time. If you throw a ball through a window, it will break. It's a natural reaction of glass to break when a baseball is thrown through it at a high velocity, right? So children who are abused or treated badly or neglected or used as manipulative tools, emotionally abused, child abuse comes in a lot of ways. When parents use their children as sounding boards and pull them into their dramas, that's incredibly, incredibly damaging. Even adult children, parents are parents, children are children, and there are certain things that should just stay separate and they don't. And in all of my grief, Molly and Gracie knew some. I shared some of my childhood experiences with them, but they weren't my sounding boards. They didn't know anything about anything. They didn't know about Roy, all the years that that was happening. I just put on a life for them that they could feel safe and comfortable in. Now, when it all blew up, that was pretty ugly, but most of the Roy stuff came after Molly died. So that really just affected Gracie, not so much Molly. Although my going off to Amsterdam was certainly troubling. Anyway, I have so many behaviors that people can criticize and judge and look at me in some negative way. Well, they're all pretty normal behaviors based on what I went through. It also opens my eyes to looking at other people and not judging their behaviors. That when you look at people and you see how they interact and what they like and don't like and how they live their lives and what kinds of friends they do and don't have, so much of their childhoods can come out in that and see it. So anyway, I hope this was helpful for you. I'll, I, again, the book, The Mountain Is You. I like the mountain analogy because I've hiked most of the 4,000 footers in New Hampshire, so mountains are a good thing. I hope you got something out of it. And, you know, it's always good to look at yourself and see how you self-sabotage. I don't want to tell you to do things because this podcast isn't about me telling you anything except all that I've gone through in my life. So as I wrap up the self-sabotaging effort, do something good for yourself today. <laughs> look at the way you sabotage yourself and do something different. Do something nice for someone else once you've done that. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram 
at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.